This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Get ready for another great episode of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. In this show, we are sitting down with John Fulp. He is a local commercial banker in my area, and he is going to teach you all about commercial banking for your Burr deals. Okay, The Burr method, which we touched on episode 11 of the podcast. Well, in this show, it's all about financing those deals, refinancing out of your Burr properties to get the maximum cash flow and the maximum amount out of your deals so you can keep repeating that process for that long-term wealth. Well, in this episode, you're going to learn all about that. I feel like it's not something that a lot of people talk about is commercial financing. Many people think that you have to have a large building to utilize commercial financing. Well, that is not the case. I have used commercial financing with John Fulp on single family houses. And it's been a great experience so far. And we're going to obviously dive into all that. But before all that, here is today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is pretty obvious. It's used commercial financing. You may think that you cannot tap into commercial financing with having something as small as a single family house, but you certainly can. Now, it does have its advantages and disadvantages, which we will go into the show on that. But my favorite advantage of commercial financing is if you find the right lender, if you find the right bank, they will let you refinance out of the property at any point. So let's say, hypothetically, you were to buy a property today, you could refinance it tomorrow. In a lot of cases, there are no seasoning requirements for this type of arrangement. So that makes it incredible when you think about increasing your velocity of money, increasing the amount of uh, uh, decreasing, actually, the amount of time that you have your money invested in a certain property. Because the whole essence of the Burr method is to refinance and repeat that process multiple times. And commercial financing can help you do just that. Well, with all that out of the way, I'm going to usher in John Fulp. He was a great guest and he has a lot to share with you. So here we go. Welcome to the show, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Dalen. How are you doing, man? Happy Fantastic. Saturday. Yeah, happy Saturday. I see you're uh, about to go golfing, so we won't take too much of your time and so you can have a nice afternoon there. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it, man. I hope the weather stays nice. I I know typically when it's after a long work week, the golf course is kind of the only thing that I can kind of do that kind of takes my mind off everything. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, no, I, I don't golf, but I slept in uh, pretty late this morning. That's what I like to do on Saturday mornings. It's, it's very relaxing and relieving for me after a long week, obviously. Oh, um, so John, um, can you give uh, the listeners a short introduction about yourself and what you do in your professional career right now? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is John Fulp. I, uh, I'm a Assistant Vice President over at Central Bank of the Ozarks here in Springfield. I'm in the commercial banking department. I've been in banking now for about six years, ever since 2015. And uh, I'm born and raised in Springfield. I was the kind of guy who I have actually never left Springfield before. Um, I mean, I left for a little bit uh, for different different things. But um, for the most part, I've 
Springfield's been my home, you know, the, throughout the whole thing. I graduated from Glendale High School in 2010, then I went to Drury for undergraduate, and I played golf there. And then um, I left Drury, went to go do an internship in Kansas City. I kind of figured out that, uh, you know, if you, when you're in the game of uh, uh, relationships and stuff, you kind of got to uh, take advantage of what you know, you were given. And so in Springfield, I know I knew more people. And so I moved back shortly after I did my internship up there. Did, um, I was a graduate assistant at Missouri State for the dean of the business school. And then um, shortly after that, I finished in 2015 and I uh, joined SFC Bank. And then um, just this past year, and, and well, I guess it would have been almost like 17 months ago or so, um, almost 18 months ago, I joined Central Bank of the Ozarks, um, just right in time for the whole pandemic. And it was uh, a wild ride to say the least. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I was just, I was freaking out for you guys with all the PPP loans and nonsense going on and people just throwing paperwork at you. I'm sure it was a, a, a shuffle there for a while. <laughs> oh, it's cra- you know, from, from my experience in banking, it's always like when you give someone money, you have to make sure they have they can underwrite. You know, there's so many factors in banking, whether it's credit score, ca- uh, DTI, global cash flow, liquidity levels, debt to debt to liquidity levels. Um, and so, when it comes to this PPP that started in uh, on basically April 1st of 2020, I had just started there, didn't have a portfolio yet, and we pretty much, if you had a business of any sorts, you got money. And just for an example. So let's say you have a, you're an independent contractor or you're, you know, you're a sole proprietor um, and you own your own business and you made, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in gross receipts uh, during 2019. Um, You qualified for, uh, so you divide that by 12 and then multiply that by 2.5. You would qualify for $20,833. No questions asked. And it's a little different if you have a, you know, a, a company with payroll on it. Um, uh, when you have a company with actual employees, you have to base it on payroll. But pretty much anyone that had sales, um, at least during the 2020 run, um, you got money. And, um, you know, for the guys like you and I that are uh, also W-2 employees, pretty much everyone benefited off that, except for if you worked for somebody else. And, um, but I will say, I think that, uh, you know, banks across the country right now have more deposits than ever, which you'll kind of see that, you know, people, if you actually dig into um, the whole, you know, side of banking, you know, why, why are banks being so aggressive right now to, you know, lend and and for like future development and stuff. It's because, you know, when a bank has all this deposits on hand, they're not getting a very good return on it. Typically, you know, the fed funds paying about 0.1. So, they want to lend it out. And it's actually, when you hold deposits on your balance sheet uh, and you're not lending it out, it actually decreases your return on assets. So um, it's been a, with rates still low, it's been a crazy uh, couple, you know, almost a couple years now. And now with um, starting on July 31st, if you haven't had a PPP loan, if you originated a PPP loan in 2020, starting July 31st, whatever bank you did it through is going to have you start making interest payments or some sort of payments because you have to apply for forgiveness now. So we're all hands on deck because the last thing I want to have is a customer call me on August 1st and be like, Hey bro, I knew I thought this was, this was forgiven. And you know, it just takes kind of like a teamwork between the bank and the customers. 
Yeah, yeah, I can uh, vouch for that. In my personal life, you know, I I had a small consulting gig in 2019, so I was actually able to get the PPP loan, um, just a small amount, but still it was like free money just because I had sales and I was an independent contractor and I actually just got forgiven for that. Um, So would you say to people, I mean, this is not the topic of the show, but would you say go out and apply for the PPP if you haven't already or is it too late for that? So right now it's too late. Um, Who knows what's going to happen as far as like a round three goes. So it actually stopped on... As far as I know, it's it's uh, over because I think there were some uh, banks that are CDIF or CDFI uh, certified, which is has something to do with like loaning money to low low income and um, you know more like low income housing all that stuff. And so I've I've heard those banks were able to do it, um, but as far as like us, we we couldn't really do it past May first. So it's almost been two months now, and it's been kind of a break from the hustle and bustle. But um, I would I would definitely. Uh, if you are listening to this and you have a PPP loan and you haven't applied for forgiveness, definitely go talk to your banker and see, you know, how you guys can uh, work out a plan to get that forgiven. Because um, contrary to popular belief uh, across any rumors that I've heard, they're not, you're not supposed to have to pay them back. You're, they're supposed to be forgivable if you use them correctly. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, getting away from like the PPP, uh, that's awesome. And you can find more information online about that. It's kind of more of a 2020 thing. You kind of had to get in on it a little bit earlier. Um, But yeah, like John said, if you do have one on the books right now, make sure you get that forgiven because it is intended to be completely forgivable. Well, the main topic of today's show is commercial lending. I know you know a lot about that topic, John, just because you you work day in, day out in that uh, field. Um, so can you give the listeners the basics behind commercial lending and how it differs from traditional lending that a lot of people know where an individual is borrowing money from a bank? Yeah. So, you know, commercial lending, it's uh, as a commercial lender, I've done this now for about four years in the lending world. Um, it differs from consumer lending in the sense where, you know, there's really no consumer protection. Um, uh, there is, but, you know, not as not as intense as fair lending uh there's a lot more negotiating. There's a lot more competition uh, as far as, you know, when you do a, a million dollar uh, commercial loan versus a, you know, 20,000 consumer loan, every portion of that interest rate matters because, you know, let's say 4% on, you know, a million dollars is $40,000. So, but if you had, you know, 3.5%, well, that's $35,000. I mean, that $5,000 can matter a whole lot versus if it was $100,000, that's only a $500 you know, difference. So um, commercial banking in Springfield, Missouri is probably the most competitive sector you can probably find. Uh, any, I mean, I'm sure there is, is an accounting too, but these days, um, you know, my dad was in banking growing up and like he always preached relationships, relationships, and it is 100% about relationships because at the end of the day, if you're trying to get started in commercial real estate, you want to have a great relationship with some some commercial lender, some maybe sometimes two, just in case you know, one bank doesn't want to do something and, you know, you want to make sure you still have um, the the rates and stuff you're getting is still competitive, you know, but yes, there's a lot of different kinds of commercial lending. You have, uh, you know, C&I lending, which is, um, you know, where you do like operating line of credit for some big uh, manufacturing company. There's obviously commercial real estate, which is kind of my specialty. Um, that's, that's the bread and butter of any community bank that you go into. Um, you know, and then there's also like, you know, business financing where there's like, you know, uh, if you want to acquire a business, there's, you know, there's those kinds of, uh, they call it SBA loans where there's really no hard collateral behind it. Um, but the most popular thing you'll find at any bank is 
your one to two family commercial lending, which is, you know, your single family rentals and duplexes up to actually fourplex because fourplex and below is still considered a, um, I guess they would call it a residential mortgage loan. Um, still commercial um, if it's in a business, but they you can finance it on the secondary market and kind of what they call house hack, um, which is a whole, you know, whole different realm where if you're looking at buying a house, you can actually buy a fourplex and live in one side while renting out the other three units and have those three units pay for your mortgage. So, you know, and then you get to five plex or five units and above, which is multifamily, you know, commercial. Um, and that's right now, probably the most competitive market you can probably find. It's very competitive in single family and duplex, you know, fourplex. But when you get to like five units and above, if you buy it right, you can make a lot of money up doing it just because there's different ways the appraisals come back. If you have a one to four family, the appraised values are based on uh, uh, sales sales approach, which means, you know, what's a comp in the area that this is, uh, you know, sold for. And if it's a five plex and above, it's more on the income approach. Um, just, you know, for an example, if you were to buy a 10 unit apartment complex and let's say each unit was uh, renting for about, let's say 650, because in Springfield, that's a pretty good guesstimate. So at 6,500 a month times 12, that means your gross rents per year, 78,000. So as a bank, we'll we'll project like an expense ratio. So we'll multiply that by 0.7, which is a 30% expense ratio. And then we'll divide that by a cap rate of what what is going on right now is a six and a half cap rate or below. Um, So that, it's automatically worth, you know, in my, in the bank's eyes or in the appraiser's eyes, that's worth about 840,000. If you were to raise those rents from 650 to 750, which is about, it's a little under 15%, I think, or maybe it's about 15%. Um, that would actually, you take that 840,000 and that would actually increase your property value by $120,000 just by raising the rents by $100. And that's the beautiful thing about um, commercial real estate is it's all income driven. So, you know, I work with guys a lot that that scour the streets for good deals. And if you can find an under market valued um, apartment complex for, you know, whether it was for someone that, you know, was a landlord for 30 years and didn't really ever want to push the, the buttons as far as uh, getting the the tenants to, you know, raise rents on there. So they're still stuck at like 2010, 2005 levels. You can actually create the most value for yourself um, in, in the commercial real estate realm under the income approach. And so it's one of my favorites. I'm sure that you um, talk about it quite a bit, but there's just such a broad category of commercial lending that it's kind of, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I want to um, kind of summarize the, some of the things you said. Um, the first one being uh, commercial lending is from the bank to a business, right? Uh, yes. You'll never see you'll never see a loan from a bank to an individual in your department, correct? And then secondly, um, it's based on the asset. So you use the income approach. So it's all you and your underwriters are looking at the asset themselves. So whatever an investor can do to raise rents and maybe it's um, pass on the utility costs to the tenants, those sorts of things directly improve the value of the property. And then therefore what you can get a loan on, correct? Yep. Perfect. 
All right. Well, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of our listeners are maybe, you know, delving into the uh, bigger stuff like the five to a hundred units things. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people also just do the one to four unit game and they are still looking for commercial lending. So kind of what are the typical terms and interest rates that one can expect for like the one to four unit? And then we can talk about the five five to a hundred unit and so forth. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's the, that's the great part about commercial lending versus consumer lending is that when you look at consumer lending, it's really, you know, you come to a bank, they tell you this is the interest rate, and that's kind of what it is. You know, if, uh, and if you say, oh, you know, can you, and can you do any better? They really can't because it's based on fair lending. And you, no matter who you are, when you walk into a bank, I've got to give the billionaire the same rate as the person working, you know, the uh, blue collar job, which is, in my opinion, is, is great. I, I think that's great for society and all that stuff. So commercial lending, um, it's, it's all based on two different kind of finance rates, which would be the Wall Street Journal Prime and also the, the LIBOR. Um, LIBOR is kind of like old school. LIBOR is more like for um, larger institutions. But at Central Bank of the Ozarks, we base it on Wall Street Journal Prime. So uh, you know, when I moved to Central Bank last year in March, um, Wall Street Journal Prime actually reached its historic level lows at three and a quarter. So three and a quarter is the base rate that um, the Wall Street Journal Prime rate would be. Whenever the when they first lowered, you know, the rates to three and a quarter, typically the bank likes to get a spread of over three percent between our deposits and our loans. So you know, we started off by having about you could find a five year balloon rate, which means. Um, if you buy a property and because uh, you go through a bank like, you know, a regional community bank, we can't fix the rates for 20 years. Um, in some cases, we have a product at the bank where we can fix it for 15 years because it's a one to two family and we can actually pledge those if we need liquidity at the bank. But be, if you ever, uh, if you guys have ever heard of the savings and loans institutions back in the 80s and 90s, you'll notice that they aren't around anymore. That's because back then they actually would fix rates for 20 and 30 years. And whenever, you know, five years goes by and the deposit rates actually are over what you're actually paying someone on a loan rate. So you have to, you really have to look out for um, interest rate risk. So typically at a bank, just this is completely standard. You'll find three and five year balloon fixed rates. So you come to me, you want to buy a, you know, a duplex, and I will offer you four uh, percent for five years based on a twenty-year amortization. That means that your interest rate will be four uh, percent for the next five years, and then after five years, you come back to me and we renegotiate the rate at whatever market rates are at the time. But your but your loan is actually paying on a twenty-year amortization, so in twenty years, your loan will actually pay off. So. Typically, I guess in that kind of sense, you'll actually meet with your banker at after five years, after 10 years, and after 15 years. And after 20 years, hopefully, you know, you haven't refinanced it or anything like that. Although it's there are some cases, in my opinion, that that's actually something worthwhile doing. You'll have it paid off. Um, and every bank is different. Right now, we have seen rates um, stay at that three and a quarter level for the past 18 months. So just by competition, Rates have gone from your typical five-year fixed rate was about four and a quarter back last year, and now your typical five-year rate is about three point seven five percent for five years. Um, and you know, different banks have different competitive advantages. Um, 
I don't want to overwhelm. I want you to kind of ask the questions. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but that's kind of like what the rates aspect are, but yeah. there's a lot of different variables in negotiation. No, I think that's, that's good that you pointed that out. I don't think a lot of people understand that on commercial lending, the whole five-year fixed, uh, but it's on a 20-year arm. So basically what you're saying is when I come to you and want to buy a real estate investment, um, I can expect a five or even sometimes seven-year like fixed interest rate. And it's, it's a balloon, but it's, it's not really because, I mean, you're, it's very unlikely that you will actually require all that money due at the end of the five to seven years, which is the essence of a balloon payment, but you're just there to renegotiate that. And I mean, should investors expect that interest rate to go up significantly, or is it just at the whims of the economy at, at the end of that five years? So that's a great question. And that's a question I get all the time as far as, you know, well, people get scared because back in the housing market, uh, housing crisis back in 2008, there was a big uh, discussion around adjustable rate mortgages. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Big Short, but they talk about, uh, you know, different clientele bragging about, you know, I've got a rate, I've got a house here, here, and here. And, you know, little do they know that after three years, that, that was the big uh, big bad news back in the day in 2008, the three and five year adjustable rate mortgages. So, you know, with adjustable rates, your rates, you know, and, and let's say it was, let's say right now your adjustable rate would be 3.75. And then after three years, it doesn't balloon. It just adjusts to whatever market rates are. So in that sense, um, it can be scary because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But at the same time, um, you know, the Fed has been at this quite a while and they know what will happen if they raise rates too quickly because that will be detrimental for the banks. So in reality, if you have a, if you're doing a balloon note with a bank, um, five to seven, in some cases, even 10 year balloon, if you can get one, um, you will actually, it's not as scary as you think because back in, when I started in banking, we were actually pretty similar to where we're at now, um, where rates were at three and a quarter. I honestly was in, new to banking, so I forget what really caused that. I think there was a minor scare in the market back in 2016, 17. Um, but rates then were 3.25, you know, that was prime. And so now, you know, in 2018, 19, rates actually went up to about five, five and a half percent. Um, but I think everyone always thinks like, you know, balloon, oh my God, like in, in five years, will I have to pay 20% on my mortgage? And that's not, that could not be farther from the truth. You know, in the worst case scenario, you're going to be paying about five to 6% in about five years from now. Um, Just because the Fed knows if they raise rates any faster than that, then it would be um, not only very detrimental to our bank's interest rate risks, but the whole global economy. Because that means, you know, that means if, you know, if rates are at seven and 6%, that actually means that, you know, CDs and money markets, those are not paying your 0.1 to 0.4%. They're paying like two to three and a half percent, which is great for retirees, but it's kind of a different story. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's always a scare, but I think that, um, you know, and also, you know, if rates were to go up to five and 6%, you have to raise rents too. So, you know, if you're scared about your mortgage payment going up, well, if, if rents, uh, if rates are at 6%, you're going to, everyone's going to be raising rents to cover their mortgage payments. So you're not going to get the same rents you are now, you know, when you're, when the bank's only charging you three and a half to 4%.
Yeah. And as investors, we have so many different exit strategies. So if you see that your amortization is coming up, you're, you're closing in on five years and you're not okay with the interest rate your banker's giving you, you could sell it, you could refinance into a different product. But really, like you said, I mean, your rent should have increased like 10% over five years. So your rent yeah. should very well cover any increased um, interest rate. And who knows that interest rate could even go down or it could stay stagnant. We don't mm -hmm. know. So worst case scenario, like you said, it's like five to 6%. Um, mm -hmm. But nobody has a crystal ball on that either. <laughs> Very true. I wish we did. Um, can you talk about the advantages of like the traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans? I know you don't maybe do a lot of that directly, but just quickly like the advantages, but also the disadvantages of that. For sure. So I would say that um, from my understanding, I've never been a mortgage loan officer, but I've worked with them enough to know what the different like, you know, pros and cons of them are. Um, so it's my understanding that when you do use secondary markets, so the obviously the big pros, you know, you you get your primary mortgage, you can get a 30-year fixed rate right now at 2.75-ish percent, which is great. That's awesome. Um, you got to kind of think about it, though. Um, you're from what like there's been a lot of uh, you know research on this stuff. Typically, no one stays in their house past about eight and a half years. So um, if you truly think that this is going to be your forever home, yes, you should get that 30 year fixed rate. But if it's possible that you can get a lower rate by doing like a 10 one arm on a 30 year AM and you can get 2.25 for 10 years, maybe that's the way to go. And you maybe, you know, after 10 years, you can refinance it again. Um, but with a secondary market, there's just different things you can do. Um, so first thing from my understanding, you can't do uh, LLC lending on the secondary market. If you do a loan on the secondary market, it has to be in your personal name. Um, you're allowed 10 of them on the secondary market. And then you have to start once you, um, and the 10 includes your, your primary that's, you know, uh, with Fannie and Freddie. And then you have nine more that you can do investment properties. Um, so when you do a, um, you know, mortgage loan with them on, or any kind of like, you know, investment property. Um, the underwriting standards are a little more stringent. We'll underwrite you at the beginning. And unlike a, you know, a commercial loan that I do, once you do that loan, it's done. You can literally um, kind of do whatever you want with it. The, there's no annual checkups as far as income goes. There's no, uh, um, it's more transactional in my opinion than, than working with a commercial lender. Um, and that can be good and bad. I think the biggest pros for the secondary market lending is if you're just starting out and you're, you know, 22 to 32 years old and you're wanting to get into, into commercial real estate, if you were to go buy your first primary residence, um, and let's say you go buy a $150,000 house and you get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage on it on a 30 year AM, um, you can actually, you know, live in that house for a couple of years then move out to a different house and then keep that same rate on that house. So when you move, it's not like um, you have to refinance, you know, that rate is locked in to you sell the house. So you can actually keep doing that and doing that and doing that. And so all your mortgages will be 30 year fixed rates, which for people who get uh, who, for people who want to hold long-term and uh, not really buy and sell properties, that's a great outlet for you to do. You know, there's other benefits of, of doing that, but I would say that that kind of secondary market financing is plus. Plus, you know, um, like I said before, on the secondary market, you can actually, you know, they call it house hack. So let's say you're 
you're 23 years old and you're like, man, I, I need to go buy a house. Um, but I also kind of want to get into investment real estate. You can go buy a duplex and you can actually finance that duplex on the secondary market and get those really favorable rates, but actually live in one side of the unit and then rent out the other side. So for example, um, Ozark right now, they're getting the rental rates there. It's very desirable. You can actually, I have customers that have duplexes there that they'll actually get about 12 to 1300 aside. I mean, they're very quality duplexes and stuff, but they cost around 250 to 280. You can actually go buy a duplex with 5% down, um, which would be about $14,000. Um, but there's also a lot more closing costs in more in secondary market. Go live in that duplex and actually have that guy pay your whole mortgage and you can actually live there rent free without any possibility of ever paying the utility bill, taxes and insurance, or the mortgage P&I payments, which in a perfect world, that's you know what you look for. Um, or eat, honestly, if you can even get into a situation where that guy on the other unit can even pay a portion of your P&I and, and taxes and insurance and utilities, that's a win. That is uh, a lot. You know, that's, that's big time for a guy starting out. You can save that cash flow and do other things with it. Um, but yeah, there's um, lots of pros to secondary market financing, but there's also a lot of pros to, you know, working with your regional community bank and uh, doing loans on the bank's portfolio instead of it being sold off. Um, just because I will say there's, uh, when it comes to mortgage financing, the closing fees, from my understanding, are quite a bit more significant. Um, for that example, with that duplex, let's say you buy a duplex for two eighty, I'm pretty positive that your closing costs will be around five six thousand dollars. Versus if you buy one, and your closing costs with a bank on a commercial mortgage, it'll be like two thousand or less because you'll have a you know five hundred dollar origination fee, five hundred dollar appraisal, and about thousand dollars in title work, and that's pretty much it. Um, and you have, you, there's much more negotiating with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, house hacking is a great wealth building tool. And that definitely is a pro for the secondary market, 30-year uh, fixed loans that because you're living in it and you can just buy it in your individual name and um, they work off of your personal income and so forth, that it's definitely a, an advantage of um, those types of loans. Um, because am I correct in saying this, that you can't do a, like a commercial loan on a house hack because, uh, or, or could you, is there a way to do that? No, you know, that's actually a good question. It's very, very, uh, I guess, kind of like a borderline. Okay. Because if you were to go uh, buy a, for example, I had this happen about three months ago where I had a guy in Rogersville buy a house on about 10 acres and, you know, on the, on the parcel, there was actually another house on there and that house has been rented out for about 10 years. And so it was kind of like, okay, is, is since it's, so if you live in a house, it's called TRID. And, um, when you do a primary mortgage with a bank, there's a lot more rules and regulations, but because there is a rental property on the property, that actually means that there's a business on the property. So you could actually come to me and buy a duplex, live in one side in an LLC, and then also rent out the other side. And you could still call that a, a commercial loan. The main benefits to doing that versus doing the secondary market financing is liability. 
Because if you if you buy a house and you use the secondary market and put it in your personal name, you're actually opening yourself up to a lot of liability if something were to happen with with the uh, with your uh, tenant. Like let's say you know in theory, let's say your roof collapsed while he was sleeping at nighttime. I know it sounds really messed up, but that stuff happens, and you know he has serious bodily injuries. So obviously you're going to have liability insurance in the property, but he actually can sue you in your personal name uh, because your name's on the property. It's not held in a limited liability company. Um, He can actually come after your assets uh, in court. So if you were to have that uh, property in an LLC and that were to happen, that guy can only come after the assets in that LLC, which kind of makes you, uh, you know, opens up another question. Do I get a new LLC for each, for each, uh, you know, property that's a little bit overboard. I know that you can work with attorneys and kind of, uh, limit your liability to each property, um, in that case, but yeah, so risk and liability is kind of what comes into play whenever you, um, when you come through us to get a commercial loan, just because everyone's out there to make a dollar and you want to protect yourself, even in the worst case scenario. Yeah. And that's why I like working with you because you obviously lend to my LLC and my LLC holds um, my properties. Um, one thing that you could do if this is kind of a thing I learned more recently, just because I just went through this process with you, but uh, my first rental property I bought on the secondary market with the 20% down and I rented it out for a year, you know, exposing myself to that liability, uh, which I guess I, I quit claimed it to my LLC after that. Um, but, and that kind of is a side note that even if you buy it in your personal name um, first, you can always quit claim it to your LLC. That's not to say that your secondary market lender won't call it due because technically it switches hands. So they have the right to call it due. Although yep. if you are paying on time, then they usually don't. But um, that 99% of the time. But then what I did is after it was in my LLC, still on the secondary market, I came to you and I said, Hey, John, um, if I refinance, could I get my down payment back? And you were like, certainly. And uh, you ran the numbers. And sure enough, I got my whole down payment back and a little bit more while still keeping the house. So my cash flow went down because obviously the interest rate was a tick higher and the amortization period was shorter. But I was able to um, get all my cash back that I put in. And as you get going with real estate investing, you realize like liquidity is super important and mm-hmm. you'll sacrifice a little bit of cash flow to have more properties. Yep. So that's something powerful that I did. It was almost like a reverse burr, I guess, because I bought it traditional, then refinanced it commercial. So that's something that if if you are exploring that or if you could ever explore that, then um, that can be advantageous to you. Or if you're the kind of person that doesn't like that risk, you want to have plenty of equity in your property, mm-hmm. by all means, just keep it on the secondary market. But if you're a person that's wanting to scale quickly and buy a lot of properties, it can be a good method. Yep, 100%. So, so that leads me to this other portion uh, in talking about the Burr method. I don't want we don't need to go into each of the steps because uh, even though we know that pretty well, because I've talked about that on previous episodes, but can you explain how you come into play during the refinance portion, that second to last R in the Burr yeah. method? I'm actually doing it right now and with a buddy of mine. Um, so he bought a house, you know, just recently and fixed it up. And so now he's coming to me to slap a 80%, 80% loan, which means whatever the appraisal comes back at, I can loan you 80% of that. 
So um, in this instance, we're kind of hoping that he gets all his money back. He has a hundred thousand in the property. So the appraisal has to come back at one twenty-five, And if it does, then I can loan him all of his money, purchase price and fixer up money and get it back in his pocket and then put a renter in there. And we ran the numbers. I think the um, monthly payment on 3.99 at uh, for five years and a 20 year AM is about 605 or 650 a month. And then um, on a hundred thousand dollars and with taxes and insurance, you can't always get utilities. Sometimes you have to pay the utilities and that kind of stuff, but taxes and insurance, you're looking at about, you know, eight fifty nine hundred $900 a month. Um, so if you get a tenant in there, that's paying a thousand dollars a month. Perfect. He pays your mortgage. He pays your taxes and insurance and you, you just kind of wipe your hands clean. Um, you know, and you're right. You know, I think that me and this guy actually also talked about, let's say it appraises for one sixty, um, and I can get him over 120,000 out. His actually mortgage payment goes up from, uh, I believe it was 650 to eight, 825 or something like that. And I, I know that different people find that to be a different number, whether that they, people think it's high or think it's low. But uh, when you borrow too much money and uh, you know, you have a, that same renter is now paying you a thousand dollars and your principal and interest plus taxes insurance is now 1050 or $1,100. So you put a hundred dollars in every month. It's uh, it's almost not worth it to borrow more money than, you know, what you think you can get in rents just because um, you also want to keep some, some equity in the project. But um, if you were to, let's say you had a, you know, 10 of these things and, and I had a buddy of mine um, that actually faced this where he got too leveraged and every month, you know, he was also putting in repairs of the property and stuff. And in the monthly rent payment was, was never actually covering the expenses for the property each month. So, you know, that happens for five, six months, that can be a lot of money on a lot of properties. So it's very important not to over leverage yourself whenever it comes to, you know, doing the Burr method. But yeah, and it's also very, very, very dependent on the appraiser. You know, in some cases, the appraiser, um, you may find a guy and you may completely disagree with what his uh, appraised value comes back. You know, in certain instances, um, you buy it for 80, you put 20 into it. And the guy's like, well, I think this is worth 90 and I can only loan you 80% of 90. So you actually have a lot more in the deal than you planned for. And in those cases, in my opinion, it would be smarter just to sell the property. Um, you can maybe do a flip on those instead of keep it. Because if you were to go to a different bank and order a new appraisal, you know, you may have the same problem. So you always want to have all your options open, whether it's a, you know, burr or just fix it up and sell it just so you can get that equity back. You don't have to worry about the mortgage each month. Yeah, that's a very good point. Having multiple exit strategies, um, because let's say that appraisal in your example came back at 160. You really got to watch out for that because you may think, oh, it's my lucky day. You know, I can pull out 30,000 more than I have into this. Well, but then you're not going to be cash flowing. And I think a lot of people get into this real estate investing for the cash flow. So you can't lose sight of what you initially set out to do. So maybe you only pull out, let's say, 65 or 70% of, of the appraised value. And don't think of that as a loss. Like you're, you're, you're going to keep your cash flow in check and you're going to have this equity cushion for yourself. So it's, it's a balance, you know. I, Right now, I feel, I feel like I'm, I'm young and I, I want to scale quickly. So I'm more likely to 
do the over leveraging than somebody who's maybe older and seasoned. But I, I really have to keep myself, you know, aware of that because I do have friends. We know of somebody, uh, a common friend that did that and he was putting in money each month because mm-hmm. his payment was exactly what the rent was. But as we know, your that, payment is not your only expense, your, your yeah. bank payment. It, you've got repairs and maintenance. So it, it's will, a tricky game. I will say that in different situations, it's different for everybody. You know, I have guys like, uh, like you who have a, t- a nine to five job that had that W2 income per year. Um, and then you have guys that, that their sole job is real estate investing and rental cash flow and that stuff. So it's honestly, it's to each his own what you kind of, what your comfort level is because it's, there's no one size fits all for everybody. Yeah. And that actually leads me to another question. So do you need a solid W2 job to secure a loan with your department or do you only look at the deal itself uh, in a commercial deal? So that's a very good question. And I would say it just depends because um, if you were to go buy a, let's call it a 10 unit apartment complex or above, most of the time you look at the project and then you look at the person's balance sheet. Well, if a person has two or three million in debt and only three hundred thousand in liquidity, you perform what's called a global cash flow, which is when you get all their financials together and it spits out a number after you take in like rental expenses, rental income, W two income, all the income and expenses combined. Um, I will say that it's not necessarily easier when a person has a W two necessarily, but if you have an actual business outside of just owning real estate, um, whether it's, uh, you know, being a realtor or wholesaling houses or buddy of mine has been, he's an architect and can, is an independent contractor for architecture. So he gets paid and has his own business or myself, you know, I work a W2 job that always helps get qualified because, you know, if you ever, you're familiar with a, what's called a schedule E on a personal tax return. And most of the time, there's a number on the top that has your gross annual rents. And then there's two numbers, interest and depreciation. And then there's a a bottom line number for total expenses. It's kind of complicated, but what you want to do is make sure you have enough gross or net cash flow from the operations of your uh, real estate to cover your annual debt service. And if you don't, then you want to have that secondary job because you know, let's say, and this is, a, I, have to, I have to kind of coach people when they do this. If you really want to get in the business of borrowing a lot of money and being a guy who really, really gets aggressive with debt and stuff, the banks look at your financials every year. They call it an annual review at Central Bank. It's if you have over, I think, a $500,000 loan relationship, commercial loan relationship with the bank, then we perform what's called an annual review where every year around tax time, I'll email you, the accountant, and ask for, I need your. Um, personal business and a new PFS and possibly a rent roll on your properties. So we have a loan review team that is at the main branch at my location at Central Bank. And they will actually perform what's called an annual review. Different banks do it differently, but then we kind of meet and talk about, okay, how did their, you book a a $5 million loan in 2017. And then in 2019, you see that they actually suffered a huge loss so um, if that happens, you have to watch those credits more intensely because there's actually uh, an old saying in banking that, um, you know, you don't necessarily always make a bad, you never really make a bad loan. You make a good loan and then it goes bad. Just, you know, 
if a guy loses his job two years later or gets cancer or the D's of the deal, you know, that um, all that stuff factors in, then it's not really your fault. It's just kind of life happens. But the banks reserve loan losses for those situations. I mean, we're very, very, very safe with that stuff. Wow. Yeah. So um, definitely those were some good points. Um, I'm curious how much like employment time do you expect to see uh, if somebody is self-employed, let's say they want to, you know, leave their job eventually, how much employment time, like uh, rental history and self-employed history do they need to get the most optimal result? Yeah. In terms. I think it just varies for each person. You know, I think that if um, let's say you have a, uh, a W-2 job and then you decide to go do your own thing, I think it's smartest to possibly do that on the side before you fully commit to that. Because I can tell you that if you were to come to a bank and, you know, ask for a commercial loan and you had four months ago started a brand new career of owning your own business, then the bank's going to kind of look at it and be like, okay, we would kind of maybe want to see about 12 months income history for your own business. Now that's completely different. If I move from, you know, if I move from banking to go to a W2 job as a finance guy somewhere else, because W2 is guaranteed most of the time, unless you do something with, with that uh, job. But um, when you do have, uh, when you're a sole proprietor and you, and you kind of, you make, you eat what you kill, typically banks like to see about 12 months, 12 to 24 months uh, history before you can, they want to get real aggressive with you. Now there's, you know, there's a lot of times where I think one of your other questions there was uh, how much rental history would, would someone like to have? And there's actually kind of a, a double-edged sword there because, you know, some banks may look at that and they may want, Hey, you know, you've never done a commercial loan before. We want you to have at least 24 months uh, or a couple. We want you to have some help and maybe be in the real estate industry before. But a lot of the times that's not possible. Like you to get in the real estate industry, it's like getting a job. A lot of times job postings post, you know, I need five years experience. Well, okay, how do I get that five years experience without actually having the job first? So when you look at people that are trying to get into the commercial real estate industry, you really want to look at someone and say, okay, they're making good income. They don't have a lot of and what I call dumb debt, which is credit cards. Um, I'm not saying that installment loans are dumb. I think installment loans are auto loans. I'm not saying they're dumb because you can get 0% interest financing. You can get one point, you know, 2.99 financing right now, very, very cheap money. But it's also, uh, there's a guy who I watch pretty intently. His name's Graham Stephan on, uh, on YouTube. And, um, if you were to, instead of getting, you know, going out and buying a BMW for 40,000 and leveraging yourself, in practice, you should probably wait to do that until you make enough money so you can really pay for that. Um, but anyways, so when a new person comes in to buy their first, uh, you know, piece of real estate, you want to make sure that they, uh, you know, have enough liquidity um, to make sure that if something bad were to happen, that they're covered on that aspect. Not a lot of um, debt. Typically, your your most healthy forms of debt, and you probably have already talked about in this show, would be your mortgage loan, one car loan. Depend. It just depends on your income levels. One or two car loans, um, and then not a lot of credit card debt, not a lot of personal loans that are just signature notes. But you want to really stick to mortgage and, and, and auto loans, and then you want to stick with business debt, and you want to have a healthy form, healthy level of liquidity on hand. And it's pretty. You're you're in a pretty safe position um, with that borrower, and then that's why it's good to have a relationship with a banker because you can grow together. 
six months later, they, you can kind of tell, uh, you can watch their balance sheet over time and kind of dictate, okay, you know, this guy had came at me in January of 2021 and had 50 grand personal mortgage, no other debt, 12 months. He has 20 grand personal mortgage in a rental property. Where did that 30 grand go? Well, he spent it on, you know, dumb things. You can actually look at the balance sheet. Someone gives you, it's called personal financial statement as like a thermometer um, for someone's financial condition. So what you like to see is someone saving money, obviously putting money in, in uh, investment vehicles and whatnot, uh, whether that's a stock market bank account um, and whatnot, and kind of, you can watch them and grow together. Yeah. And that's why I just preached knowing like your financial statement and because you threw out a lot of terms like your balance sheet, which is basically all the assets you own minus your liabilities, your personal financial statement, PFS, which is all your income and expenses for the year. And this is not just terms for accountants and bankers. Like everyone needs to know these things. I know they don't teach it in school. It's a travesty, but you have to know these things because when you come to somebody like you in the commercial department, they're going to expect you to know what these things are and be able to fill out a mm-hmm. statement like this. So just, and just leveling up your financial education all the time is super crucial. It's one of yeah. the most important things in life. So as we're wrapping up here, John, um, how can investors like myself and other real estate investors make your job easier as the lender? You know, I would say that you want to, like you just said, you want to be more well-versed in your tax returns. You want to know exactly what uh, bankers look for um, as far as cash flow. Um, you know, I this is a huge issue I dealt with in, in PPP time. So back last year um, in 2020, the PPP loans were based on, for sole proprietors, based on net, net profit. Um, and they changed that during 2021 to go off gross profit. Um, but you know, if you're a guy and you own your own business and you say, you know, you made $200,000 in gross sales. And then at the end of the year, after all profit and expenses, you only show $30,000 in profit. The banks can only use $30,000. Whether you think you make 200 or not, we take net profit just like any other thing. So it's very, it'd be very cognizant of that. If you want to, um, be borrowing money, um, you know, just be very aware of your spending habits. If you, if you want to work with the banks, um, their job is to protect their depositors and um, also make money for the bank, their, their shareholders. And so, you know, if a bank, you want to find a, a relationship with a good banker that maybe if you're young, find a younger banker that way, like, you know, you guys can grow together. And my opinion, the younger bankers, they want to work pretty hard because they want to do good and, and move up in the banking world. But yeah, you want to have an open communication and um, just to talk with your your banker about uh, finances and, and whatnot. Yeah, just uh, I would emphasize just having that relationship with your banker is, is super important. Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm trying to grow our relationship here and just hopefully that, uh, you know, as you see me grow and I see you grow, that we just continually bounce ideas off each other and help each other out in our careers. 100%. Well, it's, we're coming up on the uh, hour mark here. Uh, thank you just so much for sharing your knowledge about banking. And if you have anything more to add, please do now before we wrap it up. The, the only thing I wanted to add, because there's so many different parts of banking that for you to, uh, for a person that, you know, there's the commercial real estate lending, C&I, uh, business acquisitions and lines of credits and all that stuff. 
if you're a business out there, um, cause honestly, I would say 75% of the time I work with real estate investors on their projects, but I also, uh, 25% of the time I work with businesses like, um, whether it's your manufacturing businesses and stuff, cause they, they have to sometimes, you know, own, they own their own real estate. Um, if you're out there and you're a business owner and you own your, and you want to own your own real estate and, uh, maybe it be your owner occupied building, please do your research on what an RMI 504 loan is. Um, it allows you to get a fixed long-term rate. Um, it allows you to put 10% down. Um, and, um, you know, and there's a lot of, there's fees also associated with it too, but a lot of like, you know, when you're starting a business, the money down is the biggest, uh, obstacle that you'll face. And so I think that if you, um, do your research on RMI that we have local people with the SBA that we work with. Um, our local representative is Annette Darnell with the 504 RMI. Um, and I feel like that tool isn't used enough. I'm actually working on one right now. Um, it does take longer. Um, there's more red tape because you do get a right now, just for example, um, it's a commercial loan and it's $3 million purchase. So we loan you 10% and then, I'm sorry, you put down 10%. Uh, we loan you 50% and then the RMI loans you the remaining 40%. They take second deed. Well, there's second deed. Um, that could be a, you know, $1.4 million, $1.3 million loan. Um, that loan is actually fixed for 20 to 25 years. And right now the rates are about 3%. Um, so it does take longer. Um, but I feel like that this, that product isn't talked about enough. And I'm, as I'm working on run right now, I think that, uh, um, it's a great product for a lot of businesses to have, but there's just, there's a lot of banking stuff. And if you guys have any questions, you guys can always feel free to call me at central bank of the Ozarks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, there's so many products out there than just your typical uh, products that we talked about for investors. But I think most of the people listening to this are investors. Maybe they're looking to do the Burr method or a house hack or just buy it straight up uh, with you. So um, and I know there's a lot of local folks around the Ozarks area. So, so you work for uh, Central Bank of the Ozarks in Springfield, Missouri. Um, what is a good, you know, phone number or email address that you'd like to throw out there if people want to pursue a relationship with you? Yeah, absolutely. So my phone number is 417-848-9777. Uh, that's kind of, I call the bat line. You can call me whenever you need anything. Um, and I work at the main branch at, uh, Glenstone and sunshine right across from the Plaza tower, um, the VIB hotel. And then my email is John J O N period full F as in Frank U L P at centralbank.net. Um, and I, work all the time. So if you have any questions on anything, just feel free to give me a shout, run some ideas by me and uh, I'll be happy to help. Yeah. And John is fantastic to work with. He's even uh, can negotiate with you on certain terms. So absolutely. Uh, thank you for being on here and uh, sharing your knowledge. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.